0: Welcome to Heartspeak Podcast, episode 237 ETs and Us. Welcome to the Heartspeak Podcast, where valuable insights are shared that bypass the mind and resonate with the heart. Listen, open your heart, become inspired, find the joy and fulfillment that awaits when you follow your heart. And now, here's your host, Dr. Christine Page. Well, hello there, wherever you are in the world. It's good to be back with you. I hope you've had a good week as we have. And we've just come back from a trip down south and where we live and a visit to Roswell, which is known in this area and perhaps around the world for one of the famous UFO crashes that occurred in 1947. And I wanted to go there to see what was still talked about, whether or not this was a place where... There were a lot of ET sightings and when we got there it was a fairly you know low grade town it was just a simple town but they had a very good museum which I enjoyed going into which reflected not only what had happened in Roswell but really around the world in terms of UFOs and ETs and interestingly so I went in thinking well maybe They will hide a few things because I had watched many episodes of Ancient Aliens and listened to Linda Moulton Howe talk about different aspects of the communication that goes on with the governments and ETs, and I'd listened also to Dr. Greer, and he talks about this. So I was pretty, you know, up there with on my understanding of the Roswell event. So I was very happily impressed that they had not secured or made different statements, they had actually allowed it to all be seen as it was. So what happened was that around July the 2nd, 1947, there was apparently a a thunderstorm, lightning storm, and the locals saw this flash of light and something crash. And it was out in the desert, it's fairly desert-like out there. So they had gone out and they had found this UFO, that had landed and they found these little characters, little beings, I think there were four of them, some of them were dead and some were alive. And it is said that some of the locals walked off with little bits of wreckage, I'm sure they did. The crash site was quite wide and first responders came and they were looking at how do we help the survivors of this crash and then came the military. And, of course, this was a very big deal for this area, especially in 1947 where there probably weren't too many people living. And the main guy, maybe one of the firemen, stood up and said, okay, we are reporting a UFO crash in our area. And he went onto the radio and recorded this. Well, very soon the military came in, and by the following day, There was no sign of wreckage, no sign of little people. There was no sign of anything. And there's a very famous recording of this man saying, oh, what it was was really just a weather balloon. And he has evidence in front of him of a weather balloon. So it was hushed up. And yet, of course, so many people had seen the evidence that it wasn't all going to be hushed up. Although this museum showed very clearly that many of the people who had arrived first on the scene, including some of the military, were told, you cannot speak about this ever on the threat of something happening to your family or to you. And really, most of them didn't share, except maybe on the deathbed. So this was such a huge deal that the government, the military, decided they were going to shut it all down. Now, clearly, this was not the first UFO crash, and I'm going to keep using the word UFO. It's much easier for me. It wasn't the first crash that ever happened in the world, and it wasn't the first sighting of UFOs in the world. But it was a big event because maybe we had more communication at that time, 1947, than perhaps we'd had in earlier days. There'd been many sightings in the 1800s, um, and also stories about abductions happening, etc. So what then went on to happen was, why did this happen? I said, I'm just going to take you one step back, was it is believed that we already had contact with extraterrestrials, more sophisticated groups who had technology that we didn't have prior to the 1940s. Why I'm saying that it was believed that people like Oppenheimer and those who were splitting the atom in back in the 30s had received this knowledge from ETs, from more sophisticated individuals who were not of this planet. And what I've heard is that they gave the ability to split the atom so that we may know how to use this gift for fuel for, for electricity, etc. But instead, back in the 1941, and of course that was during World War I or II, the Americans decided that they would go ahead and create an atomic bomb. Now, I'm again not suggesting that it was only the Americans, but this was an American experience, so this Roswell event, and we all know that in 1945, Unfortunately, two bombs were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima in Japan with devastating results, results that are still being seen even now. And I understood from what I read that literally in July of 1945, the first atomic test was done in New Mexico. And this really shows that New Mexico has always been the site not only of these ET landings or UFO crashes, but also of leading science through places like Los Alamos. So I'm saying here in, we, humanity learned how to split the atom for a certain purpose, but instead of using it for that purpose, from about 1941 on, the focus was on creating an atomic bomb, which first was tested in July of 1945, And and then, unfortunately, the bombs were dropped in August of 1945. So you have that history leading up to this, which then, and even the museum suggests this, that the ETs said, oh, my goodness, what are humanity doing? So that this little aircraft, this little UFO that crashed, was one of the scouts that was sent out to say, Humanity is really going off the rails, probably not the first time, and we need to find out what they're doing. So this was in 1947 compared with 1945. So here in 1947, we have that crash, and I understand there were more crashes after that, or, and again, I'm seeing this maybe over that next 10 years, UFOs were also shot down because in 1951, A new group was set up to actually start to investigate the relationship we have with ETs, but more important, their technology. And so 1951, that was set up. 1955, another group was set up. And we ended up with a group called MJ12, which is Majestic 12, who were really quite a secret group who still exist and went behind, perhaps, the president of that day to say, okay, what can we gain from all the information we're gathering from either crashed ufos or those that um, we've shot down and so you get this sense that from that middle of the 50s there was a huge interaction a great uh, connection made where the technology that was brought this way was used for maybe, who knows, nefarious or beneficial results for humanity. So places like Area 51 in Nevada were set up in that time, and this became a huge complex, you know, hundreds of buildings, hundreds of miles of tunnels, well, maybe hundreds of miles, but miles of tunnels. And it is said that between New Mexico and Nevada, there's just tunnels everywhere underneath, cities underneath, but military ex- installments and I know they've gone even further away from now, Area 51. There are many other installments, it's certainly down probably towards the Sandia Mountains, Kirtland Air Base, et cetera. Why I'm saying all of this is it's not just happening in America, it's happening everywhere. And I think that the concept is okay, why do I want to share this? Is because this military knowledge or this knowledge is being used so anybody who says oh my goodness there are ufos in the sky and they may come and attack us oh my goodness we better defend ourselves is really playing with us because most military have already been working with them since the middle 1950s a long time 60 70 years and then back in in 19 i think around 1989 someone leaked more information, I think, from Area 51 saying, well, we're already working with anti-gravity, new propulsion systems, working anti-matter. In other words, the advances by the end of the the 80s were remarkable. So the idea that we're still looking for uh, little UFOs with flashy lights, as I like to say, is, is ridiculous because even the military know how to mask themselves, shield themselves, uh, move in an anti-gravitational way, which you may have seen recent UFO documents were saying, oh, look, we don't know how to do this. Who could be doing it? Well, you've been doing this for 30 years, so why are we all going, wow, at that time? Then you can hear that I have a great interest in this, really because I believe that we have always being connected to different groups from what we might say outer space, other galaxies, other universes. And this is really where I want us to go. It's not necessary just to say, well, what's going on now? It's also about who are we? Now, before I go there, let's just take a few steps back because many traditions, uh, indigenous traditions, talk about having come from the stars, yes? You may have come across how the Aborigines talk about this, how the Hopi talk about the Zunis. Many traditions not only talk about it, but actually have drawn this in petroglyphs. And this museum had various images where someone might have what looked like antennae coming out of their heads, or they may have big eyes. And uh, even in Japan, when I went into the museum there, they had the German people, and the German people – uh, were back 14,000 years ago. So I'm really wanting you to get big here. And they had these big goggle eyes. I mean, who were these people? They just call them the German people, but they clearly looked like space people because they had goggles on and maybe headsets on and, and they had, you know, belt on. <laughs> so clearly, who were these people? They were certainly not just farmers or ga- hunter-gatherers, as everybody wants to convince us that that's where we've come from. So... Even 14,000 years ago, really across the world, you're going to see different images created. Now, I might go back to places that I might uh, see in Tiwanaku in Bolivia. Now, that's said to be a very ancient site. And there you see these figures. Often they've got their fingers down towards their navel and everybody says, oh, it must be because they were naval watchers. (laughs) They watched their umbilicus. But the fact is, Now I'm starting to understand that many of these different uniforms that you could say that we see on some of the reliefs or the images that are very ancient are actually showing us not necessarily someone who was naturally here on Earth but was someone who may have come from another civilization, another um, galaxy, but were needing to dress themselves in a way that allowed them to adapt to our atmosphere. So they often have a belt on and you go, okay, there's a belt there, but it's not just a belt. I mean, I have to say, if I was going to, not that I am an artist, but if I was going to draw someone, I may not put so much effort into making sure I draw the belt right or the neck piece. You might say, well, Christine, you're not a very good drawer. No, I'm not. But the fact is many of these, energies or these images I see are very specific about uh, having a belt or as I say, a necklace or a headpiece. And you'll think, why why did the sculptor or the person who was doing this make so so much of this? And at the same time, you may have come across different images that have what we call a man bag. And I've seen these, I've seen them in Turkey, I've seen them in the Sumerian images, I've seen them in Egypt. And they literally are, you could say, a bag. Or I even could say a square bag. It doesn't have to be square, but it's got a handle. And everybody wants to know, what, what's this man bag, as they call it? And it's always being held by someone. If you've never seen this, just go into Google and look up man bag. But now I'm starting to understand that this may well have been a bag of that had some technology in it that allowed these beings from other other galaxies, other dimensions, to be able to survive in our environment. So the belt, the man bag, the necklace, whatever, the headset, all of these things were valuable. And it makes sense because if we're right, there are places, <laughs> we say, uh, places out in other in solar systems, other galaxies, where the light is not as bright as ours. So they have to have lights so they can see. And other times their light is too much where they come from our light is too much. So they have to wear goggles to quieten it down. So you can understand that maybe you know it's such a refined environment here where we have this certain amount of oxygen, a certain amount of nitrogen, a certain amount of gravity. You know, We just went to the moon and we had troubles being there. We had to wear all these spacesuits. So any sophisticated civilization must know how to do this in a way that we're still in the very infancy of wearing a big spacesuit. So when you look at different images, and and again, in this museum, they showed uh, Lord Pakal, and Lord Pakal is represented in Palenque. He was seen as one of the lords who ruled the area of Palenque in the Yucatan. And you see him looking as if he is in a space suit and sitting in a space capsule. You know, he's leaning back and he's holding different controls. I'm sure they're right. And understand that wherever we created this enigma of this superior being, this God who came to save us or came to talk to us, probably was just an E.T. who had come from another dimension, another galaxy. If you read Ezekiel, he writes a lot about the spacecraft that takes him in various energies. So in our... Understanding the earliest scripts, the Sumerian scripts, and even before that, where we only had drawings or sculptings, we see the representation of these beings who have come from somewhere else, adapted their suit to be able to live with us here on Earth for a short time. Then they leave and everybody goes, wow, where did they go? (laughs) Well, they knew how to leave this particular atmosphere, this dimension and go somewhere else. And just before I finish that little piece, I want to say that beings who live in other dimensions, other densities do not have to leave this planet. This planet exists on many dimensions, just like my aura has many subtle bodies, so does Mother Earth. And Mother Earth, or Gaia as we would call her, has these different dimensions. And so we are living amongst, you could say, multidimensional beings who we cannot see because of our lack of ability to see into other dimensions at this time. But we sometimes say, oh, I feel the presence of someone. You may believe in fairies, which I do. And, of course, if you come from Ireland, there's a lot of knowledge about the Dadana who went into the earth, lived in the other world. Or you may go up a mountain. You might say, oh, there are beings who live up there, Shangri-La. So the history tells us that we're living not just with beings who are coming, having a little machine that comes here. They're already here. And they've been working and living with us for a long time. And in my area where the Hopi and the Zuni are, they have stories not of coming from the skies. They they are born from the earth. And their story is that when there was a catastrophe, they went into the caverns, into the caves, which makes great sense to me, and they met what they called the ant people, A-N-T, ants. (laughs) And they call them that not because they look like ants, but because they were living within the earth. Now, there are images, petroglyphs of such beings, and they do have these antennae coming out of their heads. But the fact is the ant people had been living or these people had been living in the earth since other catastrophes. And when the Hopi, let's say, went down and said, hey, can we come and live with you? There's a catastrophe on earth. They went, oh, not again. <laughs> they said, OK, you can come and live with us. And that's why the stories for the Hopi and Zunas is about that they are born from the earth. And you often will go to somewhere called a kiva, which is a sort of underground chamber And there will often be a ladder, the symbolism being that you're climbing up the ladder to come up to earth and then you die and go down into the underworld or what I like to call the other world. I hope this is getting you excited because there is so much out there. So many times that we are being given these gifts and now I come to where we are now. You know, I talked about spirits last time, spirit guides. I want us to understand that all we're talking about is multidimensional, interdimensional beings. They may be fairies. They may be what we call a guide. They may be angels, but they're really, if I may say, just beings all living on different dimensions. And we could also call them ETs. What's most important is that we recognize those energies that resonate with us. I think that's most important. And they are all around us now. They are helping us to waken up and they're not doing, they may be doing it in the way we talked about last time, where they're dropping feathers for us, but they're also coming close because they're trying to entrain our consciousness, our DNA to wake up. So when you're around someone who has a similar consciousness as you, like a tuning fork, you're starting to light up. You go, oh, they must be part of my soul family. They must be part of my star family. Oh, my soulmate. So many a time we meet someone who entrains our DNA, our consciousness to rise up, to elevate it to a level where we can meet ourselves. And to me, a lot of star beings are coming to us now both individually and as a culture and as a religion, as a community, whatever, to remind us who we are. They can't interfere with our karma. They can't interfere with our lives, but they can remind us. And that's why uh, we worked with that podcast last time. And why is that important at this time? It is because if we are, if Elena Dunnan is right, and I suggested her book last time, it's called The Cedars, S E E D E R S. The controls that have been on us for so long have been stopped and have been prevented from causing us to be connected to what they call a hive mentality, a hive consciousness. So up till recently, there various ways were being used, including perhaps putting something into our body or different frequencies of airwaves that might be around us, trying to connect us to a consciousness that would in many ways cause us to lose our liberty, move more into the slavery, cause us more fear. All of those things were have been going on for thousands of years. Recently, If she's right, those things have disappeared or those energies have been blocked. It's like blocking a radio wave, a radio signal. And so now humanity is like, well, what do you want? And I think that because of this freedom that's occurred, it can both cause chaos because people aren't used to having so much freedom. But also, we are so used to going along with the controls that we've had that it doesn't really matter if someone else is feeding you that information or you're just thinking it, you still got it. And I see the same way someone says, Oh, it was my mother who criticized me and she's been dead for a long time. But now you see that this person is really good at criticizing themselves. They don't need a mother to do that. So, in the same way, we now have to pay attention to our belief systems or why we're making the choices we're making. And if they're bound up in either fear, or need for approval, or fear of being criticized, or not belonging, we're still trapped in that hive mentality. Make sense? And so what I'm taking from the Cedars, her book, Elena's book, is really to be mindful of who are we following, or what are we following? And of course, the most important thing to follow is ourselves, our heart, our inner knowing, listening to those messages. And then when we do listen to those messages, are they messages that are kind to us and pleasurable? Are they messages that we have in our minds that go chat, 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 and put us down, put us down? So this is so important now to switch those radio waves, stick, switch off those radio stations, not allow that hive mentality that may no longer be coming from, we could say, outer space, but is coming from our own inner space or even the people around us. Being able to say, you know, I used to believe that. I don't believe it anymore. I'm going to think about that. That doesn't feel right to me. And what Elena suggests or her people that she's talking to, I think is very reasonable to be mindful of any group that comes forward. And this ties into that Saturn in Pisces. Any group that comes forward and says, we are the way. We are the way. We're going to sort you out. We know what you need. Because when we're confused, when we're disorientated, it's often we look for someone else to tell us what to do. So, you know, she says, and I think that's very true, be careful of people who say, you know, I'm one of the Galactic Federation people and you're just a minion and a little human. Like, it doesn't matter. Don't let anybody come in with that elitism or that hierarchical system, even anybody. (laughs) Because you don't need it. You have your own... You are your own alliance. You are the person who knows who they need to be. And at this moment, you don't need someone to tell you how special you are or not. You just need to be true to yourself. And she suggests even those who say, well, I work with the light and I don't work with the dark. Polarization, please. So being mindful of if someone is creating two tiers or at least two tiers, step away from it. That's not the Aquarian way say, fine, have fun, great, have a good time, <laughs> I'm going to move forward. And I think all of this polarization and the calling of names is really just now falling away because it's not the way forward. So what is the way forward? The way forward is your way forward. You know, what is the world you want for yourself, for your children, your grandchildren? What is the world that you wish to live in? And it isn't out in the future, it's here now. What is the energy? Because it's more about what is the energy you want to put into the world? And to me, it's a very feminine energy. I was listening to some men talk about this, nothing to do with the fact they were men, but they seem to want to organize and have a hierarchy. My experience of being around women is not about hierarchy. It's about cooperation, coexistence. How do we come together? What is best for all concerned? That may not be your experience, but it's certainly mine of being around women. Women ultimately want to find a way through for all. And it doesn't mean just being, oh, everybody's fine. I think the way forward is once again, to bring forward those, we might've called the grandmothers in ancient times, and we still do, but who are the figures who have done their own work enough not to be influenced by their own smallness? Men or women, we could have grandfathers or grandmothers. But what we need is people who say, you know, let's look at what's good for all. If you're coming with your ego, if you're coming to meet that need, I can't meet it. But what I can do is help you to find yourself. So for us, and I just round it off. We're in this amazingly important time. We are extraordinarily important to the universe, because that we have within us the seeds of many different groups, many different species within our DNA, within our blood. We are seen as being sovereigns. In other words, we're carrying the blood of many different groups. Remember that you are a sovereign. Be that person who says, look, I am. I am an important being, not more important than anybody, but I'm certainly not a lesser being. And I carry within me the diversity of every part of who I am, and I'm integrating it all into love. So I think I'm going to finish there. I hope that I've tapped into a few areas that will interest you, interest you to find out what's going on. Let's not give our power to any ET who says, I've come from the future, I'm this, I'm that. Nobody is more powerful than anybody else. You may have different skills, you may have different insights, but please be your own queen, king, sovereign. Trust yourself, trust your heart, trust your mind, and all will be well. Until next time, bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Heart Speak podcast with Dr. Christine Grange. Please check out all HeartSpeak episodes in the podcast archive section on www.christinepage.com. HeartSpeak is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and now playing on Amazon Music and iHeartRadio. You can also watch the archive podcast on Christine's channel, on YouTube, and now on Rumble. Connect with Christine on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, including her newest Facebook group. The Great Mother Calling. You share with family, friends, colleagues. Join us next time for another edition of HeartSpeak.